Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, everybody's heard the name Charles Ives, but mainly because of his non-traditional approach to composing music. Turns out this Danbury native excelled across multiple fields, inventing an entire industry in the financial planning arena that each of us takes for granted today. And as well, he was a standout athlete. Sharing their knowledge with us on this exceptional human being are Bridget Gurton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, and Jim Sinclair, Executive Editor of the Charles Ives Society and Conductor of the New England Orchestra, and also the former Curator of the Charles Ives Papers at Yale. Stay tuned for Charles Ives, so much more than just a musical giant. Normally, when we say that somebody's talented in their field, it's usually a single field, one thing that they do better than most of the rest of us. When you're talking about Charles Ives, it's hard to find adequate superlatives because he exceeded expectations in virtually everything he did. The more you learn about this man and what he accomplished in his lifetime, the more amazing he turns out to be. Charles Ives is considered to be, hands down, one of the best classical music composers in U.S. history. He also ran an insurance agency in New York City, and as an executive there, he single-handedly dreamed up and then launched the entire field of estate planning. The idea of routinely planning for the passing of your estate from one generation to the next simply didn't formally exist until he created the concept. And Ives was a star baseball player growing up, including during his college years at Yale, where he was captain of the team. Plus, if you want or need more, he was an accomplished outdoorsman, visiting nature and pulling concepts for his musical scores from his interactions in the woods. Well, one of the many things that made Charles Ives' music so special was that he created packages of sound using the various instruments available in an orchestra that reflected what we actually heard in our daily lives. He captured those sounds of life and managed to write them down as notes on a musical score. It wasn't always pretty and melodic, particularly when he was experimenting with different techniques. It also wasn't what the public was used to hearing, but it was authentic, and it came to be valued for that. Well, Charles Ives started down his musical path in large because of George Ives, his father. Bridget Gurton, executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, says the Ives family had an incalculable impact on the city over the years, starting with his grandfather. In the middle of the 19th century, Danbury's burgeoning hatting industry simply needed to expand. By the 1840s, it was apparent that we needed uh, much more, and we needed um, a vehicle to take our goods from point A to point B in a way that was inexpensive so that we could put low prices on those goods so that we could sell them and sell more, grow our hat factories and be economically successful. But we needed the train, the railway system, to do that. Charles Ives' grandfather was instrumental in bringing that railway system to Danbury. The Ives family is also renowned for starting the Savings Bank of Danbury, a formidable financial institution in the city. For generations, they've attended Yale University and shared their knowledge, ideas, passion, and entrepreneurial flair with their home city. 
Bridget says that George Ives, Charles' dad, literally played a unique role in the Civil War. He drummed in the Civil War, and he comes back to Danbury, and he doesn't follow the pathway that the Ives men have followed before, and, and he does he breaks the pattern, and he's, he's not a Yale guy, and he does these crazy musical experiments, and he moves them around town, and all of that played a factor in Charles Ives discovering what music really meant. His dad's experimentation with music certainly rubbed off on Charles. In one classic story, his father brought two different marching bands to the town green on Lower Main Street in Danbury. They were playing different music, purposely uncoordinated, which filled the air with conflicting and unusual sounds for the large crowd that had gathered. We talk about uh, engagement in the community, and we talk about uh, pulling people out for different events and we, in, in, in our modern culture. And I think sometimes we, uh, we miss the opportunity to understand that in the 1870s and the 1880s and the 1890s and the early 1900s, an event like this would have pulled out so many people. There's no competing distractions. If you tried to pull this off now, it'd be a different story. Today, we say, oh, we're going to bring, uh, you know, a couple bands downtown on Main Street. It's, it's we've got to call the PD. We've got to close the street. Uh, there's going to be a lot to do. His father's incredible event was just one of many things that his dad did, which gave Charles Ives the level of comfort he needed to experiment with music, to try out new things. Perhaps most importantly, he paid close attention to the sounds that everyone heard. The Danbury he knew ends up in his music. It's loud and it was brash. And um, quite frankly, downtown probably smelled really funny, uh, you know, like wet dog fur uh, from, from the hat factories. And all of that ends up in Teenage Ives' mind. There were a lot of sounds to take in, from church bells to noisy hat factories to the newly installed electric trolley cars rolling up and down Main Street. The sum total of Charles Ives' oral absorption of the environment around him led to the music that most experts say places him among the very best American composers ever born. That ends up in his music, and so when you listen to some of the chaotic uh, crazy, odd pieces that he created uh, as a young man, it's Danbury. Jim Sinclair of New Haven first heard about Charles Ives when he was a youngster. He was watching a TV show called The Young People's Concert. It was hosted by another top American composer, Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein was introducing his young audience to Ives by playing his classic work, the 4th of July. And I was floored because, yeah, it was complex, it was wild, but it also really rang true for me. I recognized all the tunes, I recognized really the event of 4th of July. It sounded and felt like the 4th of July. Jim immediately went out to get more of what he had heard. I went uh, hustling down to a library to find an Ives score, to find an Ives LP, and was shocked to find that the mu the other music that I found of Ives was completely different. The diversity of sounds that Ives created continued with each selection. It was a huge horizon. It was a great panoply of music, and I was um, really hooked. So Bernstein led me to that. I should mention that Jim Sinclair, other than being a music lover, has some pretty remarkable music credentials of his own. 
He plays trumpet, cello, and piano, and is the conductor of the New England Orchestra. Perhaps more relevant to this discussion, however, were the several decades that he spent as curator of the Charles Ives Papers at Yale University. Well, how exactly do you go about getting that job? Jim was doing his master's thesis on an unfinished Ives piece. He had gone to Yale's music library, where the Charles Ives papers are stored, to study some of the original musical sheets. There was one in particular that he was focused on, one that everybody else he concluded simply had not been completed by Ives. I uh, wrote a paper on it and did a realization that showed that uh, all you had to do was match up this and that, and there was the whole piece. Well, his work caught the eye of the then curator of the Ives papers, and thus began what you might call a harmonious relationship. He said, we're only two years here from the Ives uh, centenary, which landed in 1974, and I need your help. So I stayed forever. Well, today, Jim is retired from the Yale faculty, but he still manages the collection as the executive editor of the Charles Ives Society. So he knows more than a thing or two about Charles Ives and his music, and he also recognizes the awesome nature of what he's been allowed to do in that role. Pouring over it, seeing Ives' marginalia on there, real personality. And I've gotten to know every note and every memo that Ives wrote over 8,000 pages of music. It's a humbling experience, absolutely. Lots has been written about the influence George Ives had on his son, and whether, to some degree, Charles got the credit for ideas that his father actually had. Well, Jim says that Ives' first biographer, Henry Cowell, touched on that. Cowell was a decades-long friend of Ives, who also played and loved music. He wrote his biography and published it after Ives passed away. Well, Jim says that Cowell wrote that, indeed, Charles Ives wrote his father's music. But he says there's a catch. His father, while very imaginative and forward-thinking, uh, and encouraged all kinds of uh, composing hijinks by his son, uh, wasn't really much of a composer. But he wanted his son to have the freedom to uh, imagine. So while George Ives certainly had an outsized influence on his son's musical experimentation, it was Charles' ability to write compositions and musical scores that allowed these sounds to be replicated by orchestras everywhere, and that's what set them apart. Regardless, Jim says that once Charles Ives had this freedom to experiment bug firmly implanted in him, he took the ball and ran with it. Ives carried forth the openness attitude, the love of hymn tunes and march tunes and dance tunes and popular music that permeate Ives's music. Bridget Gurton says the father-son relationship has, since Cowell's biography, been noted many other times by expert historical researchers. We're sitting in my office and I've got uh, three sets of bookshelves and we're looking at the top two shelves over here. And those are all fantastic books exploring Charles. And almost every single one of those wonderful books touches on his dad. And while not taking anything away from the impact George Ives had on his son, Bridget says it's also important to recognize other factors. Sometimes we focus uh, a little bit on the, the men in the family, but the women uh, were defining matriarchal figures for him as well. Two women in particular, his mother and his wife Harmony, 
were instrumental in getting Charles Ives to believe in himself, especially in his darkest hours. As with many artists, his work wasn't fully appreciated at the height of his prowess. It would be, in fact, many years before people finally caught on to his musical intellect, and it was only then that they would begin to truly appreciate his skills in composing. In fact, a number of audiences openly booed his work in the early days, a major affront to Ives and one that he had some difficulty accepting. Bridget credits Harmony with convincing her husband to take a step that at the time was highly uncomfortable for him. In retrospect, her support and encouragement were nothing short of miraculous. I think it really is what led him to eventually self-publish and uh, self-promote and allowed the world to hear what Harmony had heard, what his mother had heard, what his extended family had heard and knew was groundbreaking, fantastic music. And she helped him bring that to the world. One of the reasons why Ives' music was poorly received at first had to do with the fact that so many people came to know of him through Cowell's biography. Jim says that Cowell was a fan of Ives' more experimental scores, and that's what he focused on in his book. Jim says that subsequent biographies have covered Ives' work more broadly. The other biographies uh, that we now have were written later, so all one could depend on was that fine, stalwart, friendly biography that Henry Cowell had written back at the time of Ives' death. So, much of the public's first interaction with Ives' work was the experimental out-there music. The word most often associated with his music in those days was cacophony, meaning a harsh, discordant mixture of sounds. The public saw his experimental music first and only slowly became aware that he was a deeply grounded Victorian age romantic composer at heart and in training. Jim also says that at that time, music simply wasn't like what Ives was composing. He put real life and character into his music. At its time, music uh, was very strictly ruled, beautifully done by, say, Tchaikovsky or Brahms, but sonata forms with set themes and such, and Ives didn't follow that, so audiences would have been mystified at first. Jim says that Ives wrote in a special language, a language that the average person, who wasn't terribly musically inclined per se, didn't really understand at first. He captured music in the way that we as humans actually hear life around us, not the sound that's caught inside a set of headphones with pristine, undisturbed harmonies. Rather, Ives delivered the sounds we experience when we venture out into the world around us. It's often multiple musics going on around us, and he wanted to be able to write that way. Jim says the result is a special version of how life is when expressed musically. And indeed it does capture, as the 4th of July does, the way things happen, not not just what happened, but the way it happened. And Jim doesn't hesitate for a second in placing Ives near the very top of the list of America's greatest composers of all time. Charles Ives is the, in the group with the top four composers in American music, uh, classical music of, of America, Bernstein, Gershwin, Copeland, Charles Ives. Now, of course, greatness doesn't necessarily equal commercial success. For example, you may not have a Charles Ives LP in your collection, and you may not even be able to name one of his songs. He's still an acquired taste for many among us, 
And as Jim notes, not like the Beatles, where you can hear versions of their songs in instrumental form while going up several floors in a building elevator. No, of course not. He's not writing that kind of music. He doesn't write elevator music, and he doesn't he doesn't write you know music. His music is a very thoughtful sermon on being American. Well, I asked Jim about that, the fact that few people seem to be really familiar with his work, almost as if his legacy lives in some obscurity, and yet he has his giant, bigger-than-life persona within the American classical music genre. Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, the most popular works, the most played works uh, of Ives, well, probably at the very top is The Unanswered Question, which just it causes people to jaw drop when they hear it for the first time. Variations on America is another Ives composition that's played so much, according to Jim, that it almost single-handedly keeps one publishing company in business due to the substantial royalties they receive. Well, Charles Ives didn't need to be financially successful in his music. His business interests more than took care of that. Bridget Gurton says that Dives came from a long family line of business and financial entrepreneurs. In his case, he ran the insurance agency in New York City, and while there started, as we said, that lucrative and important field, estate planning. And it just shows how interesting his mind was, you know, that he could go from this complicated musical thought and arrangement and then do this on the other side. Ives was captain of the Yale baseball team and an accomplished pitcher, although he liked other positions as well. Bridget admits that one of her favorite artifacts at the Danbury Museum is Charles Ives' baseball cap. It was a little bit moth-eaten when they received it, yet the deterioration speaks to her in a different way. It shows its age, and it shows really hard use. And I think it is a defining artifact because it speaks to the passion the man had for this sport. One famous quip attributed to Ives is the answer he would give when asked, what do you like to play? His answer, shortstop. Jim Sinclair says that Ives was as comfortable in front of a piano as he was in a business suit or on the baseball diamond, not to mention his love of the outdoors. He says that this type of profile made him a natural at Yale. Charles Ives really was, for the time, a classic uh, Yaley. And uh, Ives was very much a social person. He was shy, but he was very social. He was very popular. Well, actually, Jim says there was one subject that... Ives did not do very well in, but he more than made up for that later in life. I mean, he nearly flunked algebra, but he invented some of the most important things that are math-based that business uh, knows. His estate planning concepts continue to be taught to this day. At Yale School of Management, they teach Charles Ives as a breakthrough person. They don't mention his music. And Bridget says it's well known that his love of hiking and mountaintops had an impact on several of his musical arrangements. Nature always has a positive effect, right? Uh, so you get outside, you spend some time, you uh, let go of the cares of the world, and you hike, and you reconnect. And uh, he did that. Well, getting back to Ives' wife, Harmony, for a moment, there's a great story told by Jim Sinclair about their courtship. Harmony Twitchell was the sister of Ives' roommate at Yale, and her father was Joseph Twitchell. Joseph Twitchell was the minister of the Congregational Church in Hartford, a major and prominent position. 
But more to the point, Joseph Twitchell was best friends with none other than Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain. At the time, Twain was living in Reading, Connecticut in a magnificent mansion called Stormfield, and Harmony was one of Twain's favorites. In fact, she referred to him as Uncle Sam. So before the final sign-off could come on Ives marrying Harmony, Joseph Twitchell said that Ives would need to get Mark Twain's blessing. With that, Harmony and Charles Ives went to Stormfield to meet with Samuel Clemens. Jim says that Ives found it most intimidating to meet America's top author. And he was shy, one foot on top of the other, just kind of looking at the floor. Clemens uh, saw that and was amused by this discomfort. So he just stretched everything out and said nothing and puffed on his cigar. And in true Samuel Clemens style, Mark Twain made a request. He said to Harmony Twitchell, well, spin him around now. Let's see the aft. <laughs> just making the it uncomfortable as possible. A short time after Clemens passed away, Charles and Harmony Ives bought land in West Reading, not far from Stormfield, as a spiritual move to be near where Uncle Sam had lived. When Charles Ives self-published his works, he chose 114 of his 187 musical scores to include. The name of the book wasn't overly creative from a marketing perspective. He called it 114 Songs. But the content inside more than made up for the lack of creativity on the cover. In a somewhat interesting twist of fate, the copyright for one of the songs was tied up in a dispute with the estate of famous author Rudyard Kipling. So when the first edition of the book was published with a green cover, there were only 113 songs. Well, eventually Ives got the rights for the last song, and he reprinted the book, this time with a blue cover with all 114 songs. Well, sadly, there are fewer of these books remaining today than might otherwise have been the case. And that's because Ives gave them away for free to friends at the time, friends who frankly may not have recognized the genius of his work, or who might not have been able to simply read music. Many of them disappeared. Now it's a great rarity. Uh, a copy is worth about 2500 bucks If it's got an Ives marking or something in it, it becomes of inestimable value. While Ives continued to work at his insurance agency in New York, he stopped actively composing as World War I was getting started. There was a lot of pressure on businessmen like him to sell war bonds to support the U.S. military's war effort. Plus, his estate planning concept had him in high demand. Beyond that, however, there has been some speculation that there was maybe more to him laying down his pen than just those points. Some have wondered whether he actually had an emotional setback related to the very poor reception his music received initially. Bridget Gurton has heard those comments, and she says the truth behind Ives' decision to stop actively publishing is not entirely clear. He had suffered setback after setback in his musical career. Meanwhile, uh, his opportunity to uh, grow his family, to be economically successful as other members of his family had been before him, uh, but in a slightly different way, uh, was tremendous. And so there's that burden of expectation uh, that we um, set on ourselves and the burden of expectation uh, the world sets upon us. Regardless of the reason, Jim Sinclair says that Charles Ives accumulated a multitude of achievements that can never be questioned. He calls Ives the quintessential Connecticut residence. Composer laureate of the state, 
born in Danbury, raised in Danbury, educated in New Haven, built his home in West Reading, and went on to New York to become an incredibly successful businessman. I'm billions of dollars of income in today's money. Also, the uh, great composer of Connecticut's past. And as for Bridget, she says the museum display with Ives' baseball cap, his musical scores, and the photo of him in his office tells the story for her. Charles Ives was a man of many dimensions who filled each one of them to the fullest. It's like, wow, this guy was so multifaceted. He was uh, a renaissance man in many ways. Charles Ives finally received major recognition for his work, and it was while he was still alive. In 1947, his third symphony won the Pulitzer Prize. It was music that Ives had written for the famed Center Church on New Haven's historic town Green, not too far from where he played pitcher and shortstop on the Yale baseball team. Well, by then, at the age of 73, Ives had become so wealthy from his business activities that he gave away the financial prize money from the Pulitzer Committee to charity. You can see his framed Pulitzer Prize at the Charles Ives Birth House, which has been preserved for public tours in Danbury. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my guests for this episode, Bridget Gurton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, and Jim Sinclair, Executive Editor of the Charles Ives Society and Conductor of the New England Orchestra. Please follow me on my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check me out on my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.